Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Theology Nara. I am here, as you can see, with my friend Jonathan Merritt. Jonathan is coming at us live, although this is a recorded, but <laughs> it's live as far as I'm concerned, from, as his hat says, New York. Is this right? You're, are you in Brooklyn right now as we're talking to you? I am. I'm, I'm, I'm in Brooklyn. I, I have a hard time leaving Brooklyn because I, I spend so much on rent. I feel like I need to be here. So, <laughs> Oh, man. You know, I've never been to New York City. I've been to almost every city kidding? in America, and I've never been to New York City. Can you, can you find an excuse for me to come to New York City? <laughs> I thought I was the excuse. <laughs> you can come visit anytime, anytime go. you want. There you go. I mean, you can go back to your college days, crash on the, on the couch go. here. Oh. Many, you, you'd be, you would be impressed if I gave you the list of people who've slept on my couch. I mean, <laughs> it is like the place, some, some Christian author, somebody comes in town, they're yeah. like, can I crash on your couch? I'm like, yeah, if you yes, want to. You can. As early, so, you're so- welcome. At the, uh, we both spoke at the Bad Christian Conference uh, a few months ago, and my uh, my my hotel room was a couch at one of my buddies' apartments, and so I, I actually, as a forty two year old, I thought I was past that kind of stage. Man, I was crashing on a buddy's couch. So, hey, well, and let me tell you, this is this is not just uh, this is not just cheap talk. It actually like applies to the audience because I know there are a lot of people who are listening or watching, and they're saying. Gosh, if I could just make it, yeah, like Jonathan or Preston, and they think you, you know, they think yeah. you're like touring the country and five star hotels yeah. and like yeah. champagne in your Fruit Loops. Oh man! And yeah. then when you realize, no, 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 you're going to like Paducah, Kentucky, yeah. to stay at the Travel Lodge <laughs> and like closing your eyes so you don't see the cockroaches yeah. and getting paid losing money to go give a talk like (laughs) it is not a sexy life and then you do all that and everybody hates you yeah (laughs) so so congratulations you've made it i thought it was just me so this is this is uh pretty universal yeah just to back up what jonathan's saying um i i rarely do this but this is my office i don't have a that bed is his was decorated by my kids my bookshelves are about to fall apart, and I've got my ghetto-looking lighting that I tried to do. This is my ceiling here, so uh, this is uh, okay, what, it's like a, it's like a little Cinco de Mayo. Oh over yeah, there. totally, man. So when you make it, when you get this platform in Christianity, this is this is what it is. So uh, but, but, yeah, because <laughs> let me tell you too, because this is actually my roommate's room. You can see his lovely bed. He, is he, he, is he in bed right now or no? Bed. Is that? No, okay. no, that would, would that be awesome? If I was like, "Good morning," no, he uh, he is not here because if I tried to do this in my room, there is there is no room. You cannot walk around my bed. That's oh, how wow. tiny my bedroom is. Oh my god! So talk about make making yeah. it. Yeah. You should see my. I don't even have a closet. I don't have a closet <laughs> in my room. That's how small it is. Yeah. So welcome to making it, Jonathan. We're like we're like five hours into a conversation right now, or so it would seem. We haven't even introduced you yet, so for for uh, I, I think I'm gonna guess a large portion of my audience, both in the podcast and in the YouTube world. I just started my own YouTube channel just a few months ago, so you're one of the top five interviewers. Um, who who's Jonathan Mary? G- give us a snapshot into your uh, uh, your. I mean, you can skip over all the details of your childhood, whatever. But yeah, who's Jonathan Merritt? What makes you tick? And uh, we'll go from there. We'll talk, we, oh, I want to talk about your new book as well. You know, uh, I, I got in trouble once. Uh, a client of mine was like really bothered because um, I had changed my Twitter profile to say uh, a fly in the ointment of the religious aristocracy. <laughs> Uh, but as cheeky as that is, I think it's kind of true in, in this sense. Uh, so I'm a, I'm a religion columnist. I'm an author. I'm a writing coach. Uh, I'm a guy. I, my business is words and ideas. Hmm. And um, the, the, the calling that I have, as I people often say, um, you know, you're really provocative. And they yeah. say that as a, uh, I think, as a little bit of a dig or criticism. Uh, I take it as a compliment yeah. because I actually believe that I've been called in this space to provoke, to provoke 
conversations. And the way that I do that is because I'm untethered, kind of like you are now, yeah. I'm untethered from an institution or uh, a church. I'm able, I have the freedom to say things that other people don't have the freedom to say. Yeah. So yeah. what I hope I can do is to be a voice for people who feel like they, they cannot express their own voice and to say things they wish they could say out loud, to ask the questions that others are too afraid to ask, yeah. to raise criticisms that others feel like they would get fired or they would, they would put their relationships at risk if they said it. So the most common thing I hear from people when I write a column in the Atlantic, you know, I'm a contributing writer of the Atlantic or Religion News Service or Washington Post or in a book that I write, the most common thing I hear from people is, thank you for saying this. Yeah. It's what I wish I could <laughs> say. That, that is so, I get that same thing so often. You're giving voice to what I, what I believe, what I'm feeling, uh, what you said articulates what I'm thinking, but I couldn't say that. So thank you for saying it for me. I, that's, yeah. And that's it's, it, I think it's yeah. one of the reasons why people may be surprised to know this because look, I'm a fairly progressive guy. Yeah. That's not like, you know, nobody's gonna, nobody's gonna clutch their pearls hearing me say that I'm a fairly progressive guy. If you follow my writings, you are a bit more of a centrist. Right. Yeah. Uh, I think you're seen in, in, on some issues in particular yeah. as more traditional or more sure. conservative yeah. theologically. And yet people may not know this. You and I are great friends. Yeah. We, we, yeah. we get along oh, yeah. and yeah. We, we really respect each other even where we disagree. Yeah. I mean, I think you would, uh, you would say, Jonathan and I don't agree on this issue, but he comes from a place that's grounded in scripture and history. It's thoughtful. Right. It's not just reactionary. Right. And I would yeah. say the same thing. Absolutely. This is a guy who's reflective. He's thoughtful. He's trying to live in a way that's consistent with what he believes the faith teaches, the Bible teaches. And I think one of the reasons why we are such good friends yeah. is because we are kindred spirits in yeah. that way. We're trying to be courageous in the articulation right. of our views, yeah. even though our views don't align. Yeah. And so I think yeah. we can respect what we see as a similar impulse in each other. Well, also, I, I so value like not just free speech and the kind of political, although I do value that, but I, I know that I'm wrong in many areas. Like I, I know that like, I don't, the worst thing for me is to sit in an echo chamber where I listen to a bunch of people that are also centrist on every issue and right where I'm at. I, I want people to the, and I don't like these categories and I know you don't either, but to the left, to the right, whatever, like I need to be pushed and pulled and challenged. So, and I, and I, and I not only am not afraid of that space, I actually think it's necessary like if everybody was just like right where I am, right where you are, that wouldn't be that wouldn't be healthy. I need voices. I mean, the extremes need to just go away, you know. But but the but the healthy kind of like pushbacks from both sides. I just I think that's so healthy. Like it's necessary. So yeah, abs I mean, and, and I yeah. and even where we disagree, like you said, I, I just want to say it. I mean, you're so thoughtful, and I feel like even when you're not even, but especially when you're being provocative, you're being provocative for the right reasons. You want to stir people's thinking. You, you want to challenge presuppositions. And you're, you're a, a true, healthy, provocative person isn't, isn't just trying to provoke just to provoke, like a Milo or somebody, you know, but like, like they're actually trying to stir people up to seek the truth in a more, in, in a more genuine way. And, I, and that's, that's just splashed all over everything you, you, you write and speak and, and do. So I love your voice, man. <laughs> I appreciate that. It's funny, like a great example of this recently. Uh, I, I, I started, a, uh, I brought to the fore an issue about a guy in the Southern Baptist Convention named Paige Patterson. Yeah. And I kind of picked this fight, which has now become a news story that, and I've written about it and lots of other people now have written about it. And, and I've had some people who've come to me and said, you just hate Patterson or you just hate the SBC, or you just have a personal vendetta. And that actually is not true. I mean, I love the SBC. I don't really know Paige Patterson that well. He's never done anything to me. So I'm not angry uh, mm -hmm. at him in any way. I have no personal vendetta. But he, he made some very misogynistic comments, some very dangerous comments about domestic abuse. Mm. And what, what people don't always realize is, is it's not about for me some picking some personal fight. It's about the conversation that in these circles, we have got to have a conversation about domestic abuse, mm. violence against women, uh, the, the, the impulse to, um, to leave 
powerful men alone to to make yeah. to give them unchecked power, not to criticize. So what I'm what I'm hoping to do. There's like the question behind the question. The question is, what do we do about Paige Patterson? Believe it or not, I'm not all that interested in that question. The real question is, is what do we, as as Christians of mutual good faith, what are we going to do about domestic abuse yeah. and powerful yeah. men who abuse that power. Yeah. And so that's what I'm behind. And people often misunderstand that because we're in this moment of like personality and celebrities yeah. and yeah. people, people misunderstand what we're doing. And I think the same is true for you. Yeah, that's good. Uh, re- re- refresh our audience. And, and even for me, I followed a little bit of that, but I didn't get into the nitty gritty of it. The last few weeks have been pretty crazy in my life so i've been able to keep up on stuff give us for, for the one who doesn't know too much of what's going on what 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 was it that he said and, and how did that kind of blow up yeah so it started with uh there was there were there's a guy named Paige patterson he's the president of southwestern baptist theological mm-hmm. seminary that that uh, touts itself as one of the largest seminaries in the world it's a a part of the a southern baptist convention which is the largest protestant right. denomination in the united states over 15 million members they say <laughs> Which means it's about exactly four million. <laughs> means it's about yeah, about a third of that probably. Maybe maybe that I've I've heard numbers internally in yeah. the SBC that say it's around seven. Okay, realistically by their internal estimates, not made public. But there you go. There's a little fun insider fact for for your listeners and viewers. But uh, he had made some comments, and and these comments I should say. I didn't discover these for the first time. They were made public, I think, for the first time by a a website called the Wartburg Watch, uh, uh, which is run by some women, which may explain why people didn't hear them in the SBC. But then I found them recently, and and I popularized them. I began to tweet about them and write about them. Uh, The main comment was 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 regarding what a woman should do when she is being abused by her husband. And what he said was, I cannot counsel divorce. I never counsel divorce. And essentially that it may be advisable for a woman who's being abused to stay in her home. He told a story in there about a woman who came to him who said she was being abused. He sent her home. He told her rather than um, resist her husband to uh, submit in every way uh, that at night after uh, her husband went to bed, that she should get next to her bed and pray quietly, not aloud for her husband. The next Sunday, she comes to church. She has two black eyes. She says, I hope you're happy. And he says, as a matter of fact, I'm very happy because what you have done has brought your husband to church for the first time. Wow. And it made this women out to be sort of sacrificial lambs mm-hmm. for the sake of their husbands. Uh, a lot of people reacted to that. It, it then prompted kind of a full review of his comments, which uh, over the years, which are very troubling. He, he objectified and sexualized a 16-year-old girl in multiple sermons, not just one. Now we found, uh, you know, talking about how attractive the 16-year-old was, that she was all there, uh, that uh, she was built, and that this was the biblical view of how we see women is the way he told the story. There was a 1997 quote in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution where he said of women, joked or quipped uh, of women, I think every man should own at least one. Uh, so these own? are really abhorrent. Own? And this is a, yeah. So this is a guy who has a major platform. He is yet to resign. He is uh, still slated to give the keynote uh, sermon at the Southern Baptist Convention next month. And uh, lots of criticism about this person. Uh, And he recently sort of issued a kind of sort of apology, but it's become a big issue because if you look at Christendom, and I think maybe I'll write about this, you look at guys like John Piper, Vody Bauckham, John MacArthur. These are shockingly prevalent views. I mean, Mm -hmm. John, uh, John Piper said, you know, well, if a woman gets smacked around a little bit, maybe she should leave, maybe she shouldn't. Maybe her submission is aligning her with Christ's suffering. And uh, so this is a conversation we have to have because uh, some people, uh, many progressives are making the argument that complementarianism, which if you're not familiar, not you, but your listeners, I know you are. Uh, it, you know, is this kind of view that that uh, women are are to have these separate but equal roles, which right, we've heard right, before. Right, right, right. But I'm not a complementarian. But some people say, you see that, here's what happens. If you believe that men and women should have different roles, 
it will lead to violence, it will lead to oppression, these things are connected. Now, I don't believe that one of these things necessarily leads right. to the other, but I think it's now incumbent upon egalitarians to make this argument because they want to protect women and complementarians have to repudiate yeah. these kinds of, of beliefs and these kinds of ethical frameworks yeah. because the, 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 the viability of their theological framework is at stake. Well, that, I, I would I would use the phrase. I think complementarianism in the in the twenty first century it needs to rebrand itself because it has been tethered to these more misogynistic patriarchal forms of it, and, and in order to distance itself from causing all that, it needs to be the loudest voice in critiquing it, so that when there is a, a bad form of complementarianism, because I would say intrinsically you could have. And, and I, I've been very open with my views on this, and my view is I don't, I don't know where I'm at. I was raised in a very – I mean, I went to John MacArthur's school. I mean, raised in a very, very heavy complementarian. I'm not at all there anymore. If I – anyway, this isn't about where I land, but I'm, I'm, I'm kind of open to what, whatever at this point. But I, I, even as a, you know, as a, from an obje objective standpoint, um, th there, there could be a beautiful and healthy form of complementarianism – if it sort of rebrands itself and becomes the loudest critics of the abuses, why let all the non-complementarians be the ones that are critical of some of the abuses? Then it just looks like, oh, so you actually agree with the abuses or, or you do believe that this view of complementarianism does lead to that. Um, it, it's, uh -huh. it's, I mean, and we can maybe talk about sexuality later, but because as a whatever traditionalist, like I'm like, we're the ones that need to be the loudest voices against gay bullying in the school and, and suicide rates and homelessness. Otherwise it can become very easy for us to say, or for other people to say, Oh, so your view is causing that. I'm like, I don't, I don't think it's causing it, but yes, people who hold to this view are often maybe exclusively the ones who are doing the damage. I don't think it's intrinsically related to the view itself. Therefore I, and we need to be, you know, the loudest critics of the abuses. So um, yeah, I agree. But don't, don't, you know, you said something and I want to, I want to get your thoughts on this. I mean, look, I'm a journalist, so I may end up interviewing you some. I love too. that. I love that phrase. Get your thoughts on it. That, that, that's a mild uh, way of saying, I'm going to push back on something. Okay. So you said, <laughs> you, you're, you're talking about complementarianism needing to rebrand itself. And you say, you know, it's it, to untether itself from yeah. patriarchy. But isn't complementarianism by definition patriarchy? I mean, it, it says now, they would say, ah, it's not a hierarchy, it's separate but equal. Not really, not really, because it says the top tier, the leaders, the people with authority must be exclusively male, which yeah. by definition is a hierarchy. You know, it's, if it swims like a duck and it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, yeah. it's a freaking duck. So isn't <laughs> it, isn't it by definition patriarchal? If, if you assume a secular definition of leadership, see, I think this is a missing link that uh, – within a, the Christian vision of leadership, the leader is not, it's, it's non-hierarchical leadership. It's servant leadership. It's the one washing the feet. It's the one giving himself up for the other. So I think that whole argument, which I, again, I think it works very well if we assume a very secular vision of, of leadership and, and, and to the, to, just to push back on the complementarian view, I think many complementarians have not assumed the countercultural Christian vision of, of leadership. They've assumed a very secular vision of that. So that, that's where I don't think a, a, a genuine, robust New Testament vision of different roles or whatever, it doesn't say the leader is better, the leader is more powerful, the leader is more important. It just it inverts that whole thing. So, um, uh -huh. yeah, that's I guess that's what I'd say. But I, I'm not trying to – I'm trying to say that I don't – again, it could easily fall into – patriarchal forms i think um it, it also depends on what you mean by patriarchy too i think that that term's thrown around quite a bit but i i know what you mean by it and so so yeah i would say yeah. it's not intrinsically related to that but uh-huh okay yeah. i mean i i i i agree with what you're saying about leadership in terms of that the church has uh accepted a form of leadership that is that is unique to perhaps unique to uh, 20th century Western American yeah. corporatocracy. 
<laughs> and that's sort of just been bled right. into the church, right? Where it's like right. the pastor has the final say. The pastor has the final word. What the pastor says goes. We have to ask the pastor. We have to run everything, right? right? So yeah, there's there's yeah. the, the guy at the top and everything else kind of cascades down. You have org charts and churches. Right. And so there is a hierarchical structure. And so when they say, yeah, it's not about the hierarchy, it's like, the emperor has no yeah. clothes. You we totally. all know that yeah. that's exactly what it's about. Yeah. Anyway. So I would say, yes, in terms of traditional, classic, pervasive evangelical church structures. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is hierarchical. And I think that that's, that would be, I, I think it shouldn't be really. I think that mm-hmm. the, the pastor, the leader, the teacher is one, one slice of the pizza that forms the whole thing. So that if he doesn't show up on Sunday, Okay, that's just as bad as if, you know, the 85-year-old grandma who is a prayer warrior, whatever, stereotype, um, doesn't show up on Sunday. Like, if one of those don't show up, the body is equally hindered. Um, so, so it's a, I, I don't know. I mean, and, that, and that's a certain ecclesiology I have that probably most people wouldn't, wouldn't share. But, um, uh-huh. yeah. Hey, let's talk about something else. Let's talk about your book, man. And, and this is actually going to be right. related. And, and I'm... Uh, do you you have a copy? I have a copy somewhere. It's on the floor. It's not because I don't like it. I have about fifty books on the floor because I just took my desk, cleared it, so I can't see it right now. But you have a copy. You want to hold up? Yes. Yes. It doesn't. It doesn't. Believe it or not, it doesn't make a good rug. So, so you, <laughs> if, if you if you get a copy of this, don't put it on the floor. But uh, I have a. It's not a final copy. You know, when you when you write a book, yeah. you get these little things that say yep. uncorrected proof, which means this one is full of of typos and uh, and errors. But I, I doubt. I doubt a manuscript pretty. produced by Jonathan Mara is full of typos. But go ahead. <laughs> you'd, be, you'd be surprised. <laughs> Behind every good writer is a great editor. Oh my gosh! Say. Yeah. So it's called "Learning to Speak God from Scratch," and the subtitle is "Why Sacred Words Are Vanishing and How We Can Revive Them." So that's a provocative title. Can you unpack that for a bit? I mean, I, that's real. I remember when I got in the mail, I was like, "Oh my gosh, this." I don't even know what the book is about yet. And I'm like, that's a, that title is drawing me in. Yeah. So what it basically, the, the problem that the book is seeking to unpack, explore, and hopefully address, maybe shine a light forward to a solution is, is that there is a crisis in Western civilization that most people have not noticed. It's a quiet crisis. It's been going on for about half a century. And that crisis is is uh, the death of sacred words mm. and a massive decline in spiritual conversations, which is to say that in America, we fancy ourselves to be uh, religious. There is a widespread religiosity in the U.S. If you ask people, are they religious? Many people, most people will say yes. 75 plus percent will say they're Christian and then some measure will say they're Jewish, they're Muslim, they're whatever. But then, and and even among the people who are not religious, of course, you know, this is true. uh, One of the largest, uh, fastest growing uh, religious affiliations is the spiritual, but not religious. So even people who say, ah, I'm not religious in that. I'm not tied to an institutional form of spirituality. I still believe that spirituality is important to me. So even among the non-religious, many say they believe in a higher power or God. Many will say they pray regularly to something or someone. But then when you ask, okay, these things are important to you. Do you talk about them? Most people say, no, I don't. I don't talk about them that often. If you say, okay, this word represents something that is important to you, salvation, God, or even moral words like courage words, uh, Mm. kindness words. How often do you use these words? We can track that now, how often those words appear in literature. They're they're on a massive ski ski slope. They're declining. We're using sacred words less and less and less, some of them upwards of 75% decline in the last 50 years. And if you look even at practicing Christians, Practicing Christians are not having spiritual conversations with regular frequency. So there is a crisis of sacred language in Western civilization. And my book seeks to ask, why is that? Is that a problem? And what should we do about it? Do you, do you answer the why? Or do you, do you 
put out certain theories? I, I do. I answer the why because I conducted a study in this book of over a thousand Americans. And I sat down and said, how often do you have spiritual conversations? And uh, I first look at Google Ingram data to see which words are, uh, are, are surviving and which words are dying. Then I look at conversations generally because you could say, well, you're not talking about salvation using the word salvation, but maybe you are using that. You're talking about that spiritual concept using different okay, words. Yeah. So then I went to the people and said, how often are you having what you believe to be religious or spiritual conversations? Boom. It's almost nothing. About 7% of Americans say that they have a spiritual conversation on about a once a week basis. Wow. Practicing Christians say uh, they have spiritual conversations on a one, once a week basis, about 13%, about 13% of Christians, that's all. Yeah. A massive number say never wow. or once or twice a year. Uh, so huh. most Americans are not talking about these things with any type of frequency at all. Uh, but then what I did was I took people who didn't have these the spiritual conversations with any regularity and I said, why? And I got a, a range of answers. Of course, there's, there, there, there are graphics in the book. If you look at the book, you can see uh, why it is that people are not speaking God at what I call speaking God. Um, and there's a whole range of reasons. Some people say religious conversations cause fights. They tend to end in arguments. About 28% say that. Uh, some say, I, I just don't care about these topics. About 23%. Some say, religion's been politicized. These words now, they put me into a political camp that I don't want to be associated with. About 17%. Another 17% say, I don't know what these words mean anymore. Hmm. And, and that can come from a range of reasons. For one, some of these words have become, the, the tread on the tires have been worn down. You know, we've, we've, we've used the word grace so often right. yeah. in such nondescript ways. You've written a book on this. In such nondescript ways, I don't even know yeah. what it means anymore. It's like taking a bite out of a cloud. You know, it's just yeah. meaningless. Yeah. And so there are a lot of reasons why we, we don't use these words. And I talk about each of those in, there's the politicization of it. There's the, there's the divisiveness of, of sacred speech. So I talk about all of, of the exploitation of sacred speech. A lot of religious leaders have misused sacred speech. They've turned words that were meant to heal into words now that hurt. Hmm. They fashioned sacred language into bludgeons, into weapons that they use to defeat their theological or political enemies. And when they do that, people go, I'm not touching that. I don't want to be drawn into that battle. And so there are a lot of reasons why people are not speaking God with any regularity. And, and yet the majority would identify as spiritual, but not religious. So it really has become a, a private thing because the, your study showing how they talk with other people about it. But so they may still have some sort of spiritual identity or longing or searching or whatever. But in terms of a shared community, that, that's it's a lot less is what i'm hearing is that is that would that be right right so either well well you have a large number of people who still consider themselves to be religious you do have a growing number of people who are spiritual but may see it as somewhat more private i mean they go out they go to they go do yoga right out out they don't care if people know they do yoga right so it's not totally privatized okay. necessarily but you have some religious people and some spiritual people, but this is something that unites them all. But here's what's interesting because you say, well, they still have this inner. So in other words, well, maybe we're thinking about these things, but we're not talking about okay. these things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I have a whole chapter in the book that talks about this, the cutting edge uh, uh, research that's being done in linguistics, which is showing that there is a tight connection between the words we use and the ways we think. In other words... Hmm the things that we talk about shape the things that we think about and the way that we talk about things shape the way that we think about things. So if we do not talk about God, if we do not talk about faith, if we do not talk about grace or kindness, we don't think about God, we don't think about faith, we don't think about grace or kindness. And when we don't think about those things, our behaviors are less 
shaped about uh, 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 by those things. So if we don't think about them, yeah, you may you may say you're religious, you may say you're spiritual, but that is not something that is is going on in your mind with any regularity, and it's not shaping your behavior. If you're not talking about it, you're not thinking about it. If you're not thinking about it, it's not it, you're not doing anything that's related to those. This seems to go back to Jamie Smith's thesis about the the necessity of liturgy that uh you know the the non-liturgical churches which i go to it well yeah every church has its liturgy however they define it, it's a different question but um but but more the classic liturgical practices uh it seems like it's it's combating or at least drawing on exactly what you're talking about whether they know it or not but just the the repetition the habitual nature of rehearsing of repeating of whatever isn't just you know, um, you know, some people say, well, that's just not authentic, whatever you need to be yourself. It's like, well, maybe, but just a sheer routine and practice of repeating and reciting and going through liturgical practices actually does cultivate behavior and identity. You're saying these studies would basically say, yeah, that of course that's. Yeah. So, so you're touching on something that is really, really important here. And I talk about it a little bit in the book, but I don't fully flesh this out. Maybe I need to write an article about this, but the, the reason why I think liturgical, one of the reasons why I think liturgical communities are making a comeback, if you will, even among young people, yeah. is because lit- liturgy is built on a premise that we're now learning is true from linguistics, right. which is that language is not just expressive, language is formative. So see, in other words, people like if you're if you're in a, a low low church, low evangelical, low low form of worship, evangelical churches, they see predominantly language as expressive. I I think something, and so language lets me say what I think. So you know, if, in that case, it becomes very indi- individualistic. Mm-hmm. Like, why am I going to repeat something that I didn't write and that I didn't think? What liturgy yeah. says is, is that actually this historic language, it's not about expressing something that you're thinking. It's about shaping what yes. you think, yes, yes, shaping yes. the mind, shaping the behaviors. Yeah. And so liturgy operates in, in, in a formative framework of, of language, whereas most evangelicals are in this post-enlightenment expressive framework of speech. So if you begin yeah. to see language as important in shaping you as a person, as a spiritual yeah. being, as an embodied being, as a, a being that, that thinks and behaves, then you become, you, then you come to really appreciate liturgy, not because it is saying what you're thinking, yeah. but because what it is saying is shaping what you're thinking. Oh, that's so helpful. That's so helpful. I, I, I have uh, two very different directions I want to go to right now. Um, the, the curveball I wanted to throw would be in light of what you're just saying could this not <laughs> support the what I would consider the very conservative concern about Christians who uh, believe in a traditional sexual ethic but are still gay? The pushback is that when you identify as gay, that's not a neutral thing. You should say you maybe experience same-sex attraction, yada, yada. But when you have a gay, when you when you keep rehearsing the language of being gay, gay Christian, that that is not a neutral thing. Uh, that 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 is actually shaping you towards something that could be unhealthy. I, I'm repeating the argument. I'm not saying I agree with it. In yeah. fact, I've written on this. Yeah. And, and, uh, but, I, but well, I would say I, I want to preface this by saying I, I the the part of that that I would reject is that is that if you if you use the term gay it reinforces something that is unhealthy i would reject that okay what i would accept is i would accept you're exactly right this is where i think conservatives are making an unsustainable compromise uh that that they're allowing for a use of language as if it doesn't really matter ah you can if that's what you feel express it but so long as your mind and your behaviors don't necessarily align with that, we're all good. Well, it, it, that, that um, it, it is, is counter to this huh. integrated view of language, which is you, the way you think and the way you speak and the way you behave, those are all interconnected. Yeah. So for somebody to say, I'm gay, I'm going to be gay, but I'm not going to do gay. 
creates this dualistic framework that actually flies in the face of the way that we know language works. If you begin to say, I'm gay, and you think that that will not influence the way that, 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 that you think yeah. and the way you behave, then you just don't know how language works. Wow. So you're saying, I mean, you're, you're, you're obviously not making a statement for or against, but you're saying it, it would be, it is a bit inconsistent or naive. I mean, in a sense, you're saying that the more conservative view on this thing, that a, a conservative Christian who holds her traditional ethic actually shouldn't identify as gay. You're saying that that's actually a very consistent concern. I, I, I think that if I held to that theology, which I don't, yeah. that would be a consistent concern. Uh, I think that I okay. think that what you're hearing coming from Wesley Hill, for example, yeah. is a totally unsustainable framework. And it's unsustainable for two reasons. One, linguistically, it, it, it misunderstands or perhaps it ignores the way that language works. So it is just it's totally out yeah. to lunch on on linguistics. Wow. But I think also theologically. I don't know how you can read the Sermon on the Mount, you know, to say, well, you, you can, you can, you can be gay, you can think gay thoughts, so long as you don't do gay things. And here's Jesus saying, well, if you believe in your heart this thing, you might as well have done it. Jesus understands the connection between thinking and behavior. Mm-hmm. Jesus understands the connection between language and thinking. And so he's speaking in this holistic way as these sort of post-enlightenment binary thinkers, we think we can compartmentalize these things and they do not work. If you're going to use a language, you have to know that, that you know, just like the, the famous uh, line that ideas have consequences. Yeah. Words have consequences yeah. too. Oh, yeah, yeah. Words shape our ideas, ideas shape our behaviors. And so I think that to operate outside of the way that, that we know things work, Here's a great example. There, we, we live in a context that, is, that adopts a, uh, our language is futured, right? So we talk about tomorrow. So that I, I can say to you, I, I'm going to go to the grocery store later today. That's a future tense. Well, not all languages have a future tense, right? Yeah. So if you go to like Chinese, for example, Chinese, they will say things all in a single tense and you have to understand from the context mm. when it may occur. But if you compare our society and you go, ah, it's just words. No, no it's not just no. words. Yeah. In the United States, because we think about the future, we smoke a lot less. We are in China, for example, they practice more unsafe sex. Hmm. In China, they will save less for retirement. Why? When you don't think about the future or when you don't talk about the future, you don't think about the future. When you don't think about the future, you don't align your behavior around what the future might bring. You're talking in the present, so you live in the present. And when you look at, it's not just future tenses. When you look at all of these other ways that we use language, a great example would be Hebrew. Hebrew, as you know, is as a, a, it's gendered, right? Every, Every noun has a gender. Uh, in Swedish, no nouns have any genders. And in English, we're somewhere in between. Mm-hmm. Well, it doesn't matter. It's just language. No, that's not actually true. Mm. A, a Hebrew child will come to understand their gender statistically a full year before a Swedish child. And English speakers somewhere in between. And, and people have made the connection to that is at least in part related to the nature of the language itself that they're raising. So, so if you look at, at linguists now, that are, there's these, the, the way that language shapes thought, the cutting edge uh, studies that are done on language, you see a connection between language and thought and language and behavior via thought mm-hmm. that reoccurs over and over and over and mm-hmm. over and over again. If this culture speaks about X, differently than this culture then this culture will think differently Mm. about x than this culture and they will relate via their behaviors differently to x than this culture and that's just the way language works so what you're saying is michelle foucault wasn't completely out to lunch (laughs) i i'm not all all this all this to say we have to be more more realistic about the way that our language works and not all of us are that's so good Jonathan, let's. I want to go back. I want to circle back around. You, you in passing, kind of describe yourself as more progressive. You were raised in a 
SBC environment, right? Southern Baptist, mm-hmm. standard conservative evangelical, uh, right? Is that, uh, as I understand it? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, can, yes, can... I was raised by, by a Southern Baptist minister. My dad was president of the Southern Baptist convention. Yeah. Uh, he is a TV preacher. You can watch him on the Trinity Broadcast Network yeah. uh, Sunday mornings to this day. Uh, very conservative. Okay. I mean, I went to Liberty University. You did? did my undergrad there. I oh, did. Right. I went to a Southern Baptist seminary for my MDiv. Right. Yeah. Uh, I did my THM at, at Candler at Emory University. So okay. that's United Methodist. That's more liberal. Uh, but most of my education is yeah. conservative. Most of my background is conservative. When I was in church work, I was a teaching pastor for four years at a Southern Baptist church. So that's my wow. heritage. So can you um, describe? Ways, yeah, I de- love it. Describe that trajectory. So what? Ha- I mean, so for my conservative audience, they're going to say, "Well, what happened?" <laughs> and my progressive audience is going to say, "What happened?" <laughs> yeah. Uh, I. You know what? I learned to read the Bible for myself, hmm. and uh, there was a great study that was done. This will be unbelievable to some of your readers and listeners, but there was an interesting study that was done by Baylor University not too long ago that showed a correlation between how liberal one might be theologically and how often one interacts with the Bible. In other words, (laughs) statistically speaking, the more you interact with the text, the more, more, more progressive you become theologically. That's what they found. You can Google this. You can look at it. If you disagree with it, that's on you, but that's what it says. All I know is, is I found that to be true. In other words, somebody goes, well, you were raised Republican and conservative and da da da, but you're pro-immigration. And I say, welcome <laughs> the stranger, dude. Like, yeah. I, it's for me, yeah. I go back to the text. Now, I read the text differently than I did. And that's really what happens yeah. when you start to engage the text. You start to have more nuance. You, you do become, I would say, less literalistic. You read the sure. text less flatly, but I take it more seriously than I ever have. And, and as I began to say, what does the Bible say? And do I believe it? And, and do I have the courage to live it? Suddenly, I did become more progressive. But I would say my real journey has been less from right to left and more from closed to open. Huh. Uh, I've become more of a mystic than I used to be. In some ways, I'm still very conservative. Look, here I'm writing a book. Yeah. A lot of people out there, a lot of conservatives have said, we need to get out there and start sharing our faith. We need to be more confident in talking about God. Yeah, actually, yeah. I believe that's true. This is a problem. And now I've got the receipts. Now, huh. my answer to that problem is going to be something that conservatives are far less uh, comfortable with. But this is not a question that is keeping Episcopalians up at night. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I, I've seen it true in my own life. I mean, in my more whatever my more progressive views or views that have kind of get, gotten me kicked out of many conservative circles have come not by reading books, but by reading the Bible and by taking it, trying to take it seriously. And going back to what you said earlier, being in an environment where I can genuinely be exegetical, where I could, could actually go where the text leads without having this kind of pre, you know, uh, endpoint that I must line up with, which is profoundly mm-hmm. liberating and exciting. Um, I, I love that old, you know, there's that famous quote, at least it's famous in theological circles. People like you and me, yeah, the, the, theological books, you see this a lot, that Karl Barth quote about life being lived with the Bible in one yeah, hand. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, some quotes say the newspaper in the other, or the New York times in the other. But I, I think that will begin to transform your theology, which I think really should happen. Like if you're growing in wisdom and you're growing in the knowledge of God, your views should change. And right, sometimes right. I look at conservatives. It's like you're 80 years old, man, you were really lucky that you figured out the world when you were 22 <laughs> and you were going to Dallas Theological Seminary because your theology has not changed, you know, a whit. Yeah. 22. Yeah. I think that's a problem. I think your theology in some ways should grow and change and expand as your knowledge of God, your experiences of God grow and change and expand. So what people say, you know, if, what should I do if I want to grow and challenge my views? I always say one, you should read the Bible more and you should read the Bible more intentionally. 
And two, you should become more worldly, not in the sense that you are, you know, conformed to the patterns of the world, to borrow from that biblical phrase, but travel, Uh, read what great thinkers in other fields are writing and put these things in conversation with each other, put word and world in conversation with each other. And if you can do that consistently, Something happens when those two things butt up against yeah. each other. It cre- it's a chemical reaction yeah. that will necessarily change the way you see, the way you think, the way you behave, yeah. the way you speak, and the way that you understand your 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 own calling yeah. as a follower of Jesus Christ. And I would even add to that: when you do read secondary literature, Christian secondary literature. Um, go outside your uh, your time period. Don't just read, you know, in post enlightenment writers. Read pre enlightenment. Don't just read Western, you know, majority world. Or sorry, sorry, um, yeah. Uh, don't just read Western, you know, uh, high socioeconomic. Western, yeah, white, exactly, male, yeah, yeah. evangelical, whatever it right. is. You should always you should always be challenging your right. structures, gender, race, right. and and part right. of that is because of a really dangerous assumption that evangelicals make, which is evangelicals believe in contextual theology for everybody else. (laughs) You know, they'll say, oh, that's just a womanist theology. That's just black theology. That's just liberation theology. And it's like, yeah, what are you doing? We're and doing the, the real stuff, well, the authentic stuff. I'm just doing, I'm just doing theology. I'm just There's no the adjective, right? There's yeah. no adjective on theirs. It's like, yeah. no, you male evangelical theology, yeah. 21st century Calvinist, whatever. They do not see the adjective yeah, yeah, on yeah. front of their own theology. Everybody else becomes the out group that is contextualized. Yeah. They're just, they're just, oh, I just believe the word of God, brother. It's yeah. like, yeah, but. But no, but no, actually. <laughs> yeah. <that's> so <laughs> it, it's learning to recognize our own context. When you recognize, yeah. when you put it, when you have the courage to place adjectives in front of your own theology, yeah. you will then be prepared to challenge the context that those adjectives represent by yeah. reading more widely. And it, it's not, you can't, you will never be able to read the Bible from a desert island or, or, you know, there's no view from nowhere, nowhere, but just being aware of those things that are shaping your reading. Um, that doesn't even mean you necessarily, doesn't even mean you got it wrong. doesn't mean because I'm reading it as, as a white straight male in America that everything I read is just, I'm just reading that in a text, but be, being aware of uh, the pre-commitments and biases that I have can help you be more honest and humble. I think with, with your interpretive conclusions. Mm-hmm. Um, Jonathan, you, you, you know, a few, a, a few, uh, I want to say this though, because this is important. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of your, your listeners will appreciate this because of from whom the wisdom comes. Uh, Tim Keller years ago said something that was fascinating that when he, when he, when he goes to prepare a sermon, he reads, and I can't remember the number of perspectives that he says, he gets commentaries from all these different places and time periods and everything. And he reads them in conversation with each other. And he says, if you read only one perspective, you're narrow-minded because you're just, you're just yeah. seeing the world through a single lens. Right. If you read two perspectives, so you go, all right, I'm going to read all these conservatives and then the gratuitous liberal, you'll become cynical mm. because you'll say, yeah. well, who the heck can know? He says this is true and he says, no, that's false. Who, who can know? Where you really become um, thoughtful and you develop your own thoughts is when you create these streams together, where you read multiple perspectives, you begin to have your own thoughts because you're reading from all these perspectives and all these critiques. And so that is, I think, incredibly important if you fancy yourself a theologian, a pastor, a thinker, a blogger, a writer, a salesperson, somebody who's talking, has spiritual conversation with your coworkers, you have to read widely so that you're not just parent, you're not just parroting one perspective. You don't become cynical, which will cause you to fall mm-hmm. silent, mm-hmm. but you will actually form your own thoughts and views. And I think Keller is right in that regard. That's good. That's good. Good stuff, man. Uh, Jonathan, you, you just describe yourself as being considered and, and you, you own this, you know, description of, of being provocative. Um, what are some of the top provocative articles or things that you've written that really, really stirred the pot. And uh, I would, I would like to know on a, just a real relational level, how, how do you, how, how do you just 
mentally, physically even, and spiritually handle maybe some of the criticism or pushback when you do seem to poke the bear, you know, um, yeah, with mm-hmm. different topics? Well, one one topic that I've, I've rankled a lot of people with is on LGBT issues. Yeah. Um, and it has not been intentional. I mean, mm-hmm. if, you, if you really look at what I've read, like only a small portion of what I've written has been on LGBT issues. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, it has come up again and again. Uh, I, wrote, I wrote the article on Trey Pearson, who was like this Christian rocker who came out. I broke the story also on David Gushy, right. who was a big yeah. evangelical ethicist who changed his mind on LGBT issues. I, I found Jen Hatmaker, you may remember, who when she said she yeah. was uh, LGBT affirming. Uh, I, uh, the Eugene Peterson story where he said he was affirming and then his agent said, (laughs) no, he wasn't affirming uh, who wrote a statement for him. Um, so that I've been on the front lines of a lot of those conversations Mm -hmm. for a number of years. Um, uh, so that has been, um, something I would say I've contributed to that is, uh, Mm -hmm. rankled people. Uh, I think uh, this Paige Patterson, I think will 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 go it down in the books as being one of the the significant stories uh, that I've I've written about. So uh, I, I I wrote a lot. I was one of the guys on the front lines of the Mark Driscoll uh, oh, you conversation were. that huh. was happening. So I wrote a lot about uh, about that back in the day. Um, that that was a big one. Hmm. And then um, I would say some of my my Hobby Lobby was a was a huge story for me when I was yeah. saying like Hobby Lobby is not a Christian business. This is insane. Businesses can't be Christian. Only people can be Christian. Hmm. Like get it together. That was a that was a a, um, a fairly big story. So anything I would say, even though I write, I say I write about faith and culture, which is where faith interacts with everything from politics, science, uh, trends, church, theology, arts and entertainment, uh, um, business, all of these things. Sometimes the most significant stories are the crux of kind of theology and politics. So when I write about politics, it, it ends up being kind of a bigger yeah. A bigger thing. Okay, cool. Um, who who are some significant uh, significant helpful uh, voices in evangelical Christianity today? Who who are some people that? And, and I, I'm going to assume, knowing your disposition, that it that you, you probably don't even agree with them necessarily uh, on a number of things. But who are some people that you're like? Oh, I'm so glad that this person is speaking and and. Um, and maybe some people that have influenced your own life. Well, uh, certainly Eugene Peterson um, <laughs> is one of those thinkers okay. that for me is a really, really important voice yeah. and has shaped a lot of pastors. He's older now, certainly has shaped uh, um, my thinking. Mm-hmm. I think Tim Keller is one of the most important voices because he represents, I, I would say, the most hopeful voice in yeah. what is becoming a very vibrant uh, new Calvinist movement. Okay, and yeah. that movement is not healthy by and large. Okay. Uh, it is, it, it, it is um, defective. It is insular. It is oppressive. It um, in some ways operates a bit like a cult. It shuns uh, people. Um, it is predominantly white, uh, almost exclusively male in terms of mm. its key figures and key thinkers. But then here you have um, Tim Keller, who is, it comes from that view, but is thoughtful, winsome, well-read. He's measured. Um, he is a thinking man, and he's somebody that I, I really, really appreciate. Uh, I would say um, uh, Alan Jacobs is somebody I really look, uh, look up to. His, his most recent book on how to think hmm. or how not to think <laughs> is, uh, is, was incredibly helpful uh for me and then i would say reading some of the thinkers out there who are columnists people mm. uh, the new york times has some of the best christian columnists really in the business david brooks yeah. is an incredible yeah. thinker ross douthit yeah. incredible catholic thinker yeah um and actually i would say david brooks you know we should acknowledge comes from a jewish background but if you read his stuff, you'll see some transformations there. And he writes a lot about um, Christian thought. Hmm. Um, Pete Winner, 
uh, is a, is a, is an incredible Christian thinker who's a New York times columnist. So they've got a great, uh, stable huh. there. I love Mike Gerson. Mike Gerson is great, uh, at, um, the Washington post. And these are principled conservatives. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they're, yeah, they're, yeah. they're, they're, you know, uh, winner and Gerson were speechwriters for George W. Bush. David Brum at the Atlantic yeah. is a great uh, columnist, a conservative columnist. So these are some of the folks that, that I look to from our context, which is kind of white evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think where these days is among mystics that, Mm. that the mystic voices out there are really growing and yeah. And so uh, I try to read, I try to read a lot of folks who come from that community as well. We're going to wrap things up, Jonathan. Uh, one last kind of question. And this, this could be, this could be a long discussion or it could be short. Uh, are you cynical, hopeful, or excited, or discouraged about the future of evangelical Christianity? And I just read, those are just the four, four terms that came to my mind. I didn't pre-plan that. Um, uh-huh. But when you think the next 5, 10, 15 years of American evangelical Christianity, um, what, what comes to mind? So there are... Um there are sort of three problems that evangelical, I'm, I'm a realist, I would say. Um, there are three problems when it comes to evangelical Christianity, uh, at least in its, in its conservative Western expressions. Uh, one is, is an image problem. Mm -hmm. Um, people don't like evangelicals. They see them as, as anti-intellectual, hateful, judgmental, opportunistic, uh, money grubbing, money hungry. They don't trust them. They are, they're not, they're just not well regarded. Now, evangelicals, because of their persecution complex, wear that as a badge of honor. But I think it's actually a problem that they would do well to address. In addition to their image problem, they have an identity problem. Mm -hmm. And part of this has been brought on by the election of Donald Trump, which has, 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 has revealed schisms mm-hmm. happening within evangelicalism for a long time. There are schisms along uh, uh, certain political lines, certain uh, theological lines, certain generational lines, certain racial lines. And so who are evangelicals? I mean, right. if, yeah. you, if you get a room of prominent evangelicals together and you them all a piece of paper and you say, give me the definition of evangelicalism in one line or what makes you in or out, you'll get almost as many answers as you have people in the room. And so there isn't a unifying um, matrix. And part of that is because of the structure of evangelicalism. You know, I was talking to Mm. the girl I co-host my um, uh, podcast with is Kirsten Powers from CNN and she's Catholic. And I said, you know, in some ways, Kirsten, you're so lucky. You have a Pope you have a catechism. So you, if somebody goes, well, Catholics believe this, you can say, yeah, no, they, they don't necessarily believe that because the catechism doesn't say that you have an authority. You've got this structure. We don't have that structure. We don't have a Pope. We don't have a statement of faith that unifies us as evangelicalisms. And so we have an image problem. We have an identity problem. And I would say we have an ideological problem, which is to say, Many of the the majority views, both theologically and politically, are uh, are are now overly mm-hmm. uh, beholden to mm. uh, white, Western, wealthy, and male uh, frameworks. Mm. In other words, they are they are rooted, I would say, more culturally than they are theologically or biblically. Mm. Now, what we do is we reverse engineer, right? Mm. So we say, this is what I believe, but the epistemology of that belief is Western or it's male or it's wealthy or it's some combination of all Mm. those things. And then we go back to the Bible to proof text why we came to that view. So it's not epistemologically biblical, but it has this kind of Jesus wallpaper Mm. put over it. And I think (laughs) that that is unsustainable because as culture begins to dismantle those frameworks, then the faith becomes dismantled. 
to borrow from Jesus's, uh, Jesus's words, we built our house on sinking sand yeah. and all it takes is one good storm, yeah. be it Trump, yeah. be it uh, some kind of, uh, be it globalization, be it the internet there, you, you get one good tempest yeah. that comes through. And if you built your house on sinking sand, then your house will be demolished. And what we're finding now is that the evangelical house, having built on sinking sand, is notwithstanding the mm. tempests that 21st century uh, society is, is bringing against us and it's falling down. Now, mm. what I believe, and, and actually I bring this up in the book, is a framework why this is good news hmm. is if you look historically at, at religious traditions, and I use this to talk about linguistics, but it's, you can talk about theology this way too. Uh, Richard Rohr would say um, it's orientation, disorientation, reorientation, or um, somebody might say construction, deconstruction, reconstruction. Yeah. Or um, when talking about language, N.T. Wright talks about it in terms of luggage. You pack, you unpack, and you repack. What we are seeing right now is these, the orientation or the construction was sort of messed up. Mm -hmm. And it almost always is. Mm -hmm. You know, um, uh, um, if you read uh, like Jesus Through the Centuries, which Pelican Rose is a great, which is a great mm -hmm. book. He says, you know, every generation must come to understand Jesus on their own terms and in their own ways. And this is a constant battle. But what we're in right now is a period of deconstruction or disorientation. Now, does that make me uh, less than hopeful? No, it doesn't because I read church history. <laughs> so, so you see like, well, we've yeah. been here before, right. and as you know, as the gates of hell will not prevail. In other words, we'll survive. Yeah. We'll survive this. It's going to be painful because anytime you deconstruct, you tear apart. Mm -hmm. Anytime that you disorient yourself, it can. It's stressful and it's hard, and you have to ask difficult questions. And people will fall away because they really fell in love not with Jesus, but with the orientation or the construction they were given. Mm -hmm. But I do believe once we get through this painful part, the remnant that is left will rebuild. The mm. church will have better days. It will find itself again. And then inevitably it will find that there are areas where it built its house on sinking sand and it will wash away and it will have to rebuild. But actually I think that's the engine that drives the faith forward. It's the thing that makes faith sustainable throughout the centuries. That's fascinating. You know, I thought, I've often wondered more recently and uh, about the significance of Christianity in a post-Trump world. And, and, and neither you or I are Trump fans at all. Um, but I, I wonder if we'll look back and see that this Trump era kind of drove everything to the extremes. And it almost caused like a, a, a reboot almost or almost like it just sh shook everything so hard that it kind of exposed that there is some creepy, like nationalistic, like idolatrous, weird, uber patriotic forms of Christianity that have almost been brought to light. And like, gosh, I, I want to name names. You probably know some of the people I'm talking about. Like what? Like that's your vision of Christianity. And then e even conservative, it's, it, you know, cons conservatives like al moeller or others that they were like not really into trump at all maybe maybe weren't strongly as strongly opposed as, as you and i were but um i don't know i just wonder and it is for for all the damage that's been done and all the you know fallout and, and people being hurt in the wake of it i just wonder if long term this might have been kind of like a forest fire by, by people yep. <laughs> by, yep. my yep. friends that know you know well, they say actually forest well, fires are good for the long-term environment um even if they burn uh, down some houses a lot of people a lot of people have said that donald trump had to happen mm -hmm. because anytime there's racial progress there's a reaction to it and mm -hmm. they've, they've sort of looked at it in the racial context the election of barack obama meant we had to have a trump huh. because there were too many racists in america even if they didn't recognize they were racist who wouldn't unite whether you buy that or not i don't know that's that's a political perspective but a theological read mm -hmm. of the situation is that 
Trump is apocalyptically significant. Yeah. And I'm not the first person to make this argument that, that the election of Donald Trump was an apocalyptic event in the biblical sense and that uh, an apocalyptic event is a revealing. It reveals something. One of my favorite thinkers is Barbara Brown Taylor. And she says that, that when, when apocalypse happens, when, when there's a, a revelation, there's a revealing of what's real, we enter a period of disillusionment. And we resist that. We hate that. We think it's bad. But disillusionment by definition, and I have a chapter on disillusionment in my book, which is why uh, this is on my mind. But disillusionment is, uh, is by definition a good thing. It is the loss of illusion. It is when you recognize that the things that you called truth were actually lies. And now you know they're lies. They've been, they've been shown to be what they were. So yeah, 10 years ago, we could say, ah, we're post-racial. Oh, we're beyond right, sexism. Right. Oh, the religious right is dead. We're, we're no longer beholden to partisan political power. Now we know right. the illusion is dead. Now we are, we are able mm. to confront a, a American evangelicalism and Western male patriarchal expressions of Christianity for what they are. We see them in all their raw, naked mm -hmm. glory. And you cannot address what, what we now know Christianity often is if you're living under the lie of what, what you thought it was. And so now we know what it is. We can deal honestly with the truth. And I think that if for that, it, because of that, and because of that alone, you can say in some small way, thank God for Donald Trump. How good. We got to end there. That's <laughs> so good. It's so good. Jonathan, thank you so much for being on the show. How can people connect with you? Where can they find Jonathan? Yeah, I mean, you can follow me on Twitter. You can go to my, my website or check it out. You can go to speakgodbook.com. Okay. Uh, Com. And actually, if you go there and you pre-order the book through any of the retailers on there, it's, it's not an expensive book. It's paperback. Yeah, I think on Amazon, 11 bucks or something. If you pre-order the book on there, mm -hmm. you're going to get a ton of free crap. So <laughs> you're going to get all kinds of downloads, yeah. artwork, and you're going to be put in for like drawings, for a trip to New York. I'm giving away a trip to New York. I'm giving away all kinds of expensive gifts. Just because I want people to, I, I really believe in this book. I think it's helpful. I want people to read it. Yeah. And what we didn't talk about is what is the solution to the problem? Right. If you pre-order the book, you're going to get that. All <laughs> 265 pages of it. I am going to try to get that free trip to New York. Finally, finally, you're, you're not getting it. You're not winning. I'm putting you. You're blacklisted. You, you, you got to come. That comes with a hotel stay. You're on the couch. <laughs> One of these days, I'll make it happen. Jonathan, you're awesome. I think you're uh, just such a provo provocative in the best sense of the term thinker. You always challenge my thoughts in agreement and in disagreement. Thank you so much for being on Theology in a Raw, Jonathan. Thanks, Preston. <laughs>